Hello and welcome to Unsolicited Wisdom, the podcast where I, a clueless philosophy student, ask my non-academic friends and family what keeps them up at night. And then we use conversation and canon to get to the bottom of it. I'm your host, Eliza Brewer, and we've got a great episode for you today because my dearest friend and roommate is our very first guest. She's also an artist, fabulous artist. You should check her out on Instagram at pandemic underscore isolation. You can also find her on Redbubble at pandemic iso, that's one word. So please give a very warm welcome to Molly Malczynski. Molly, thank you so much for being my first guest. I am, I'm like really actually so excited that this is our first topic uh, because it's something I think about a lot. Death. Um, Death. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I already know what your big, you know, keeps me up at night thing is. Yeah. But the audience doesn't. So can you just like say in your own words, what, what's got you fucked up, Molly? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how every single moment is like the possible moment of death. And like I'm driving, I mean, this is a little bit of an anxiety thing, but I've been like driving down the street and I see a car and I'm like, I could get in an accident with that car. Or even if I'm just like sitting at dinner, I'm like, I could choke on this noodle, you know? Yeah. Or I could just have this like random freak accident. And I just like, how, how are you supposed to live in the present if you're always thinking about this like possible end? You know, it's like this infinite present danger right and occurring. i i think that a lot of like modern thinkers who are trying to come up with a formula for happiness like that's one of their biggest recommendations is that you live in the present moment and for so many people especially anxious people yeah. it's so freaking hard it's so hard one thing i would like to know is what like specifically about the prospect of death bothers you. I know, I know that's a really broad question, but I guess like what, when you think about death, whenever you have this moment where you're like sitting at the table, you're like, oh my God, I could choke on this food. What goes through your mind? I, it's, it's not so much about um, like what happens after death. I think that's a totally different matter for me, but I, I feel like, you know, when we're living, we're on this, like, momentum, like, this this path of momentum that we're following, kind of like a ball rolling down a hill, mm-hmm. and we're all doing things that further that path and further that velocity, and we're always making decisions to, like, make us happy and live longer lives, and the thought that that could end at any moment just really fucks me up, you know? like. Yeah why are we doing it if every single moment that happens in the passage of time could be the end could be yeah your final moment yeah i think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to um and people have thought a lot actually philosophers have thought a lot i found out about um death and dying and and the big question for them seems to be, is death objectively a good thing or a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And can we like sort of logic our way out of a fear of death? And there are a lot of ways that theoretically you could do that, but 
like in the grand scheme of things, I think what's important is, is it psychologically helpful? Like, does it actually give you any comfort or consolation? Yeah. Or is it just a logical puzzle that you, you can sit in an armchair and say, yeah, this makes sense, but you're still afraid when you sit down and like eat your food. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another interesting thing is philosophers don't think a lot about the timing of death, at least the philosophy that I've read. I just finished reading a really interesting book called The Consolations of Mortality by Andrew Stark, um, where he just sort of like outlines all of the, just the, the canon on um, what philosophers have said about death and its its utility or its its detriments and benefits. Um, and one, one thing that I do find really interesting, and one thing that I think Andrew Stark finds really interesting is that uh, one way that we can really begin to approach this is by asking ourselves, okay, well, what's the alternative? And is the alternative something we'd prefer? And I know that that's, that's also kind of like a logical puzzle. Like you sit down and you think it through and, yeah. and it might not bring you a lot of psychological consolation until you really begin to integrate that into your life and really like sit with it and um and believe it that's that's the big big thing right is something becomes psychologically uh grounding when you start to believe it and i i think one thing that might be interesting for us is to consider the alternatives to not knowing when you're going to die like not knowing if this is a dying moment. So I've come up with like three that I think Yeah, tell me could, So these are the three alternatives. The first alternative is immortality. Like we never die, okay? Mm-hmm. The second alternative is um, you know when and how you will die. Like you just have that knowledge. Yeah. Or you get to control when and how you die. Like you get to choose. And I'm wondering which, if any of those sounds appealing to you right now like sounds like a good alternative i i keep thinking about this like analogy of the bowl the ball rolling down the hill and like so immortality means that the ball just rolls forever are, are you combining knowing when and how we die and controlling how no we die? are those two those are two options? different options okay so if you know the circumstances of how and when you die but you have no control over that you just know then you can like see that end post up ahead and you know when that ball is going to stop. And if you control it, then you can just tell it to stop at any time. Yeah. Which in a way we do have that power, but. We do, but it, it, it's it's something that's frowned upon. Honestly, it's, it like, is. it's something that a lot of people would, they would rather the ball just decide when it's going to yeah like it's not up to you so what i mean of those alternatives which one sounds most appealing to you i um i mean i i think honestly it depends on how successful i i feel i am with with that ball yeah like if i if i feel like i'm i'm doing great money moves with this ball then why wouldn't i want it to roll forever yeah you know So this is really interesting, actually. This is something Andrew Stark talks about. And one of the major consolations that he gives for uh, mortality is that um, immortality is something that we actually might not really want at all. Like it could be a really detrimental thing. And he sort of gives us three main 
reasons why uh, it would be a bad thing. He, he says boredom, self, self-alienation, and nostalgia are all like our most persistent enemies if we're going to be immortal beings. So here he talks about boredom. He says, um, uh, he's talking about like a trip to the Eiffel Tower, okay? And he's saying, imagine if you were an immortal being and you were going to take a trip to the Eiffel Tower. Um, He says it's not, the issue is not simply that one trip to the Eiffel Tower becomes like any other but that one trip, no matter where, becomes just like any other trip, no matter where. Then uh, one activity becomes like any other. And finally, at an abstract enough level, life itself comes to a single, undifferentiated and unending event, an unwavering gray haze, the humming of a single sound in the ear, as the poet Anthony Hetch puts it, or a gnawing hypnotic rotary hum so total that it might have been silence itself, as David Foster Wallace says. We are are pretty familiar with boredom as mortal beings. Yes. But the type of boredom we would experience as immortal beings would be so much less benign, is what Andrew Stark is arguing, and what some philosophers also argue. Like, less benign as in, like, like what would be exciting for me right now would be boring as an immortal being? It's it's not even that what would be exciting for you now would be boring. It's that every single event would become like this unending. Uh, just it, it, you, you would become fam- familiar with everything. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, everything would be available to you. And so nothing would be available to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that assumes this sort of like finite amount of experiences that are available. Mm-hmm. Like I know we've talked before about how I'm a person that I like, I am fascinated by the world around me. Like I have like a, a, a childlike sense of wonder. Yeah. And I feel like it's really easy for me to access like new experiences within a thing I do every day. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, of course we won't find the answer to this because we're not immortal, but I'm wondering if you were immortal, is it that you would find things boring or would you just find new experiences that we can't even conceive of right now. That's another thing that he talks about in this book, actually. And and I wondered about that, too. Like, even if events stay the same, like, even if one trip to the Eiffel Tower is just, like, another trip to the Eiffel Tower for yeah. me, I, one trip doesn't have to be, though. Like, I can definitely notice the uh, intricacies of... Um, a different part of it this time than I did last time. Yeah. And one one thing that Andrew Stark warns against, though, is that if we become too swept up in novelty and in change as immortal beings, mm-hmm. we, we would become self-alienated. This is the other problem. You, you would have to change with the changing of the world and everything, like everything is flowing dynamism. That's just sort of the underlying assumption is that just as you change, just as the world changes, like it will continue to do so. Yeah. And those changes will increase as, you know, we immortal beings gain knowledge and build new structures of social life and of, of material existence. And 
if it, in order to adapt to that, you will have to say goodbye to the pe- the person that you were over and over and over again. Yeah. And you would be, in, in a way, that's a little death, right? Like, that's a small... Yeah, that's that's true. I'm, I'm thinking about, like, like how out of touch boomers are exactly. today um, because they're I don't I don't want to <laughs> call no. them living dinosaurs but they they're just they just have to adapt to being a different person today than they did in their youth and and that's the other problem is nostalgia he says is is if you don't if, if you refuse to allow yourself to die over and over and over again um adapting to the new the new ways of living uh you become trapped in in a a state of nostalgia and as Mm -hmm. the stream of time moves ever forward like you're sort of just stuck in a place that no longer exists which also is a death right yeah um and i don't his argument is that none of these would be preferable for eternity like those are all just kind of uh, we we would eventually become unsatisfied with our immortal life. Um, I don't know if you buy do you buy into that? Do you think you would become bored? Do you think you would become self alienated and or, or too nostalgic? I I don't know. I think I think if there were like a society full of immortal beings, there would be like therapists that would deal with this topic and like teach us to like come out of our state of nostalgia so I don't know if like that is something you would be doomed to I mean if you're the only immortal person then sure maybe but yeah I I don't know if that's like the necessary end goal when you're immortal yeah I mean that's I, I I think one thing that and that that these arguments maybe miss is human ingenuity is the yeah. fact that like we are incredibly adaptable and that and and I personally don't find the idea of like self annihilation uh unappealing like I think that I I think that we do that all the time actually I uh, the person that I was when I was five is not the person that I am sitting here today yeah and I don't think that's a bad thing no not at all um I I think where it gets tricky is we do become a, we, we're, humans just become attached like that's a really natural thing and and if you become attached to certain people certain times certain objects if you're immortal that's going to be a problem like you are going to yeah. experience nostalgia and you are going to be in some ways like stuck self-alienation doesn't bother me about immortality but boredom and nostalgia kind of do yeah i'm i'm thinking about the documentary we watched a little bit ago about foxes and mm-hmm. how good they are at adapting to like various environments and i i think it's really just a test of human adaptability and i don't yeah. know that answer and i don't think anyone on earth can say they have that answer but like foxes are so cool foxes are so cool <laughs> they're so cool because they live in the forest but they also live in your backyard and they live in like northern canada and they can just basically do anything because they're so adaptable yeah. to their environment and they can change themselves the question though is can are humans that adaptable yeah and yeah. and in some ways i think we certainly are but in other ways like scott scott who also lives with us uh he and i were talking the other day about um 
about like ancient graffiti uh-huh. and how funny it is that it's it's so similar to like modern graffiti like yeah like ancient roman graffiti is just like, i've also hey, had this conversation yeah like julius has a small p yeah there. you know it, it um and and i was i was telling him about this uh like they found the homework of this little boy from like thousands of years ago like etched into leather i think mm-hmm. And it was so funny. Like he drew pictures of himself as like a wild beast, and he was yeah, like, "Yeah, no, I know." You're on, his about. name was On Theme. Yeah, yeah, and he he was like, "I am a wild beast," and I was like, "It's good to know some things don't change." And we we started talking about that, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it, it's remarkable how psychologically predictable human beings are, and how like pattern driven we are in yeah. some ways. But in other ways, the brain is incredibly plastic." Um, and the question is, like, would would our plasticity be able to handle something like immortality? I I don't know, honestly. Yeah, I really don't know. It it's kind of comforting because I think immortal could go two ways. It mm-hmm. could either be super cool or it could be super not cool. Yeah. And if it's not super cool, then I think it's really comforting to have that option to like end it all you know mm-hmm. like in, the, in that way death can be really a really comforting option you know you're so right about that and we don't talk about it yeah we don't talk about how like we have this sort of ultimate like end game button yeah if I we... mean unless you're someone who believes you're going to hell then yeah that that's kind of tough but what what do you think happens after you die I didn't, I, I didn't ask you that I think you just cease to exist you think you I just think blink out of existence? It's nothing. Yeah. Does that scare you? It doesn't scare me. I mean, I I imagine it's like before I was born. You know, mm-hmm. like I didn't care that I wasn't alive because I didn't exist. Yeah, that that is one thing that philosophers talk about too. Is, yeah. is how we aren't unfamiliar with non-existence, and in a lot of ways, like life intimates death. So let's let's shift away from like talking about the alternatives and talk about the reality, which is that you and I are going to die and we don't get to decide when that is or how that is yes. um, unless we make a pretty drastic decision. Yes. I think we need to sort of, we, we need something to psychologically ground us in that reality. And you were talking about how, so one interesting thing about uh, the philosophy of death is so much of it is actually a, ph- a philosophy about like how to live. How do you live a life that cheats death in a way? And yeah. it turns out there are a number of really interesting strategies. You talked about like the ball rolling and how if the ball were rolling really well, like that would be a different scenario than if it were rolling poorly. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. No, that's that's kind of what I was thinking about with death as a comforting measure because if your ball is running really poorly, like I'm thinking about, um, I never watch violent movies because I don't mm-hmm. like them. Yeah. I don't like thinking about people getting hurt. But if you're watching a violent movie and you're watching like a torture scene, um, that's an instance in which I would be like, yes, death would be very comforting mm-hmm. because your ball is not running smoothly there. It's going really poorly. Um, and what if, you know, you're, like going a little bit back to immortal life like what if your immortal life is like that life of torture you know what if it feels like that life of torture death would be really comforting um 
What were we talking about was the question. I was just wondering, like, how... We're talking about strategies of living. Yes. And how that relates to death. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It might help if I provide some context. So the what the literature says is that... Um, so there's this really famous consolation for mortality. It's, it's the Epicurean consolation. And what it says is there's sort of two parts to it. And the first part is you shouldn't be worried about death because so long as you're alive, death cannot touch you. Like, yeah. Like if you are here, death is not here. And um, so that Velleman, a philosopher named Velleman, says that one way we could conceptualize our own mortality is instead of thinking of ourselves as a ball rolling towards some like end goal, like through time, we can sort of think of our existence as just occupying a space. Like like how I was born with a hand. I was also born with a death date. I was born with all of these like parts of my life that will unfold. And I'm really like no closer to I, I'm no closer or farther away to my death date yesterday than I am the day it will happen, says Velleman. If you conceptualize our mortality as occupying a space. So let's see if I can find a quote because this is a hard thing to get yeah, around. Yeah, this is lofty. It is lofty, but it's interesting. So so here's a quote. So on Velleman's unconventional image, then, there never is a you. There never is a whole entire self that is moving moment by moment towards death over time. There are only different parts of you at, at different times. After all, there is no you moving inch by inch toward the ceiling in space either. There are only different parts of you, knees, stomach, shoulders, at different heights. No reason then for you to think of death as something to which you steadily grow nearer, any more than the ceiling is something to which you steadily grow closer. You can fully avail yourself of Epicurus's first constellation. As long as any part of yourself is here, Death is utterly irrelevant. Not only is it not present, you are not even moving towards it. Um, which is kind of, it's an interesting thought experiment to engage in. It's not one that I think is easy for people to like psychologically ground themselves in. Because we just don't see it. And, and you know, Velleman even points out, he acknowledges that psychologically we're, we're wired in a way that we can't view ourselves as stationary in time in the way that an object like a statue might be stationary in space. Mm -hmm. So that might not be the best way to think about this. Let's, let's look instead at Epicurus' second consolation, which I think might be a more interesting way to think about it, which is once death comes, there will be no life there to be harmed by it. So once death is here, you're not. And one, one strategy for living that people have employed when talking about this is called the Holderland strategy, which says that you should get all of your living over ASAP. Like you should do all of your grand plans as <laughs> soon as like, get it out of the way, get it out of the way today if you can. No pressure. Um, no pressure. <laughs> so that by the time death comes, there will be nothing left of importance to be stripped away. The problem with that being that you don't know when you're like, you could die tomorrow. Yeah. Do either of those strategies speak to you? The, the second one for sure doesn't. I yeah. can say that. Because I'm still running into that problem of, like, I could die in the middle of me trying to achieve my grand plans. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm a human being. Like, I can't 
like I'm I'm trying to live in the moment, you know, I'm trying to seize the day, but I need naps. Yeah. Like <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> We're a really nappy household. We are. And a lot of my daily activities are just not grand plans. Like I, I love scrolling through TikTok for three hours. And yeah. um that is not what I want the rest of my life to be and it's not what I want to look back on my life as, but it's really fun right now. And I don't think I feel I should feel bad about that. Can you talk a little bit more about the first one? Because what I'm picturing is kind of like all these pixels on a screen that are already preloaded, mm-hmm. like an image on a screen. And are you saying that like death is like one of those pixels that it's already there and like we are the screen? I I think let me let me try and think of like a concrete way to speak about this. I think it's even hard for Valentin to, to think about a concrete way to speak about this because yeah. what you're trying to do is you're trying to talk about time in a spatial manner and and our brains just aren't wired to think like that. Yeah. Um but I I think the best explanation I can give for it right now is that say you Okay, say I am going to the dentist on Friday, and I've, like, made that appointment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the dentist on Friday. I could think of it in, like, a really dreadful way. Like, oh, my God, every single day I'm getting closer to you going hate to the dentist. <laughs> I do. This is a fact about me. I have never been to the dentist, and I'm deeply distrustful of them. But that is a whole <laughs> other podcast. Um, I, so I'm dreading this. I'm dreading going to the dentist and every single moment feels like I'm just like, I'm the ball rolling towards this dentist. Yeah. Another way I can think about it is the moment that I made the appointment, that was just kind of like, it it was like me. One way I can think about it is the dentist is happening, whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. And the moment I made that appointment the de- the dentist appointment like existed as a part of my fate as a part of my eventual reality i'm not really moving closer or farther away to this appointment i just there are different parts of me existing in different times like there's a part of me that is existing in the dentist right now yeah. in the future and there's yeah. a part of me that's existing at the table thinking about how much I hate dentists three days before my dentist appointment. And really like the, the, the future me who's at the dentist is no more or less real than the me who's sitting at the table. That's sort of the Velman strategy. He uses the analogy or Andrew Stark uses the analogy of a, of a body. Like I, even though my head is closer to the ceiling than say my feet. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that like I'm any closer to the ceiling because my head is here. Yeah. You know, I, I make up one hole and that way you, you can think of your life as like making up one big hole, like one big body, one big race. And there are different parts of the race. There's your different parts of the body. There's your knuckles. There's your, you know, shoulders, there's your head. But that's all you. But that's all you. And there's yeah. there's none of it is any more real or less real. Yeah. I, that, 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 does, that does make sense to me, but it requires a sort of like a belief in fate. Yeah. 
um, in a belief in a like a deterministic yeah. yeah, which we've talked about a lot, and I am still chewing on. I don't know if I buy into that yet. It's a really it's something I'm not sure if I buy into wholly either. Yeah. Um, and it's also you have to do a lot of mental acrobatics to get to that point. And I don't want my listeners to go through tons of mental acrobatics to try and like no. cope with the everyday stress of being a mortal being. No. I don't think you should do that. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of other strategies, and then I want to talk about what scares me about death. Yes, yes, please um, tell me. So, okay, so here's one more consolation. This is the Buddhist consolation. Um, and I am currently practicing uh, like Buddhist meditation. And so this is a really interesting one for me. You took a class on Buddhism, I right? did, yeah. Buddhists, Buddhists believe that yourself, like, isn't a thing that exists. Like, they think that that is just a nothing. Because um, all, all you're made up of is your experiences and attachments. And uh, everything is external to you that you call self. So, like, if you stripped all of that away, if you stripped away your genius, if you stripped away your your childhood traumas or whatever what would be left like it would be nothing it would be nothing. nothing would be left yeah and so the idea is that if you if you live your life like with that mindset if you live your life believing that there is no self um there will be nothing to be touched by death like you will end up really pristine because death happens to the subject right death happens to a self if there is no self then nothingness is happen- happening to nothingness. And that's just like a metaphysical impossibility. It's like zero being divided by zero. Exactly. Like it's not anything. It's not anything. So really, it, it you can just think of it as like, like if you're a Buddhist, you would say, well, nobody went anywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> when somebody dies, you'd say nobody went anywhere. Yeah. And it's, it, but but that sort of, just like the self self alienation we talked about, that is is a pre death. Like you sort of have to to give away something in order to progress. You have to give away yourself. You have to let like mm-hmm. your idea of the ego die. And some people aren't willing to let that happen. Yeah. Um. Uh, so so the opposite end of the spectrum is the existential consolation, and their idea is that death is actually a really good thing because we wouldn't have a self if not for death. Like, like the self is generated once death enters the picture because it motivates us to, like, seize the day. It motivates us to, like, do the things that otherwise, if we had all the time, if I had all the time in the world to produce this podcast, I would never produce the podcast. Yeah. Like, I, I could literally just say, oh, I'll do it next century. Yeah. You know, if I were an immortal being. And, um... And so the the strategy for living in this case is to live life as if it's your last day and your first day, which is, but you can't do both things. Like live each day as if it were your last, but also as if it were the first day of the rest of your life. Andrew Stark says, yeah, you can. Uh, here's how it works. And the two two considerations are key. First, you look for experiences that require no time to get underway. Even if you were to die tomorrow, there'd still be time to pack like another one in. So what kind of experiences? Ready-made ones like um, that, that require no extended action or planning on your part to get going. Like 
swimming naked in the Caribbean or attending a little Wayne concert. Um, generic experiences, experiences that the world presents to you without your having to engineer them. Uh, so if you, so that if you don't die tomorrow, if you die in 20 years, then you can keep on packing them in for as long as you live. Something more unique by contrast, like if you, if you were to try and scale Mount Everest, Mount Everest backwards, blindfolded, it's not the kind of thing like you would plan tomorrow. So don't make that plan, he says. Um, <laughs> Instead, like, do, like, meet Lindsay Lohan or attend a, you know, a festival um, so that when you finally do die, you've lived each day right up to the hilt, leading a life that is as vivid and colorful as possible. Which includes meeting Lindsay Lohan. Which includes, of course, meeting Lindsay Lohan. Of course. And then he says, um, if you're worried about, like, what you have to offer to the world, like, like, packing in things to give to the world. Mm-hmm. He says make very general plans. So make a plan like invent a board game, write a book, or produce a podcast. <laughs> and uh, then you just might realize such plans open-ended as you all, as they are, but suppose instead that you die tomorrow, well then not much would have been lost with plans of such nebulous long-run nature. So nothing would have been like invested in and there would be like no sense of poignant interruption. I think that this existential consolation is the one that maybe the majority of people can latch on to the easiest. Do you think that's true? That's what I'm thinking about because a lot of my ideas about immortality come from reading the Twilight series by... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'm thinking about how these... Which we are going to watch later We are watching tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And these vampires are so, like, incredibly emotionally immature. Yeah. Like, they don't know how to resolve conflicts. They kind of just... They're like, err, you know? And they, like, try to kill each other. I think that... What you were talking about, how, like, if you were to live forever, you'd probably do your podcast next century. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what these vampires have done with, like, their emotional intelligence. Yeah. They haven't had to do anything, so why would they? And I think you're right. Like, if I could, I honestly would sleep for a century. Yeah. And it would probably be awesome, but I also wouldn't get anything done. Um, And would I be proud of that? Probably not. And so I think it is comforting that I have, in a way, something to look forward to. Like, something to work mm-hmm. forward to, which is a life to look back on. Yes, 100%. And I think that I think that I like the existential consolation better than the Holderland strategy. Because if you take the Holderland strategy and you say, I'm just going to, like, I'm going to, like, win a championship season. I'm going to produce a gold star podcast by the end of five years so that I can just sort of retire after that, like hang up my jersey. What is there to look forward to after that? Yeah. Like, and, and, and doesn't, don't your experiences sort of just remain like trophies on a shelf that you look back on with some nostalgia, but they're like receding ever farther into the past. And so really like they don't console you all that much, I think. Whereas if you make general plans and if you say, like, I want to pack as much experience into life as possible, like ready-made, mm-hmm. that is something you can do as long as you want until you die. Yeah. You know? No, I um, I think there's also this idea of 
valuing your younger years more than your older mm-hmm. years, which I like to push back against because I like I can't say that like my high school years were the best years of my life and I don't think a lot of people can say that and I think it's really ridiculous to put that kind of pressure on young people to have that be like your years you know like this is when you're gonna accomplish things yeah it's the happiest time of your life happiest time of your life and there's like 30 under 30 like being super successful super young and I know tons of old people that are so happy and they're old you know Mm -hmm. there's no reason you can't be doing things when you're old they're they're not the same things like I'm not gonna be running half marathons when I'm old not that I do that now but like my Jaju he's in Florida he's in um he's in South Florida and he hangs out at the beach he plays pickleball and he's wicked good at it too like because I am um and he's really vibing like he loves it isn't that interesting that like as people age they don't necessarily like like they they certainly can't do the things that they did when they were younger but they just like find new things to get really good at yeah like easier things like bridge or (laughs) bingo you know yeah (laughs) to employ some uh some uh stereotypes yeah i i think that there's something really comforting about employing a strategy that values all of your years equally yeah like my life as a 73 year old is going to be just as valid as my life as a 20 year old which kind of works well with the development strategy if you think about it like my just as i don't think that like my toes are any more me or any more you know important to my body than like my fingers I wouldn't think that, you know, this this section of my life is more important than the final section. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's the existential consolation. Um, I want to move on to what freaks me out, and I yeah. want I want you I want you to help me. Yeah, I'll react to that. And, okay, um, therapize you, please. please. <laughs> armchair armchair therapize me. Yeah. What really scares me about death and what has for like pretty much my whole life is this idea that like sure death can't harm me when I'm dead and it can't harm me when I'm alive but it can certainly harm the people around yes. me yes yeah and I I've had OCD for all of my as long as I can remember and not like the like the glamorous kind you see on tv like I have intrusive thoughts of like myself dying mm-hmm. people I love dying uh really suddenly or like it'll be like I'm in a hospital bed drawn out you know dying of cancer and I have to watch the people around me watch me die yeah and then this summer or it was two summers ago um my mom had a student she's a teacher and she she likes to keep in touch with her students even after they've graduated and one of her students a 24 year old she's 20 23 or 24 had cancer mm-hmm. and was dying and we would visit her a lot and we were witnesses to her watching the people she loved watch her die and at that like that's just a torturous experience like I could see it was torturous for her and she couldn't really even it it was hard to watch because I don't think she could even really like enjoy her last months because of that I don't think that she was able to live for herself 
or die for herself at that point. She had to live and die for other people. Yeah. And I think that like it like that that thought has really gripped me for a lot of my life. And I really want to like leave the smallest footprint that I can on the people's lives around me so that I can cause the least amount of suffering. But I also love big and <laughs> and love and grief are like the same, the, the, like they're two sides of the same coin and that's just an inescapable reality. And what do you do with that? Like, how do you console someone when that is just, yeah, no, I, I think about that constantly. Um, I also struggle with intrusive thoughts with my anxiety Yeah, and I, that, that's the thing that really gets me because I'm not scared of dying. You know, I think I'm just going to cease to exist and that won't matter to me. Um, but what about like my partner or you or my mother, you know, that's horrible. Um, and I never want to cause pain in anybody's life. That's horrible. Or, or absence, right? Yeah. Like, Like there's a deep absence when someone leaves. And, and this is an absence that just is never, is never reconciled, it's never resolved. What, how, how do you cope with that? Um, I don't, I don't know that I do, honestly. I think, um, I, I like to think about, like, say it was my partner, Scott, thinking about, he doesn't. I know for a fact that he <laughs> he'll be fine when he dies. Yeah. <laughs> um, he thinks about death differently. But what if he was thinking the same way I do? And he was like, I'm really scared to die because I'm scared of hurting all these other people. Um, and I would not want him to feel that way. I would want him to be at peace. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's how I personally feel. And I don't know that everyone else feels the same because everyone has different ideas about death, Mm -hmm. but that's how I feel. And it's comforting a little bit to me to know that the people who know me well are gonna know or assume that's what I would want them to do. Right. Um, And so they will know when I pass that like, oh, she would want me to be happy. She would want me to, you know, move on from this as best as I can. And so I think I try to live my life and treat people in a way that lets them know that. Yeah. Um, be consistent in that way. Yeah. I, I have a complicated relationship with death anymore, I think. Because since I've been medicated for my OCD, I have really been able to confront this fear of death in a way that I've like never been able to before. Mm-hmm. And... One thing I find is that, like, like grief, while certainly super painful, can also be a profound joy. I know that sounds, like, super weird, but I don't think joy, like, joy and pleasure aren't the same thing in my mind. Like, joy is something sublime. It's something that you experience when you love big or yeah. when, you, when you really, like, jump into life fully. And... I I was reading this book that I think everyone should read called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalamaninthi. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. And he was a neurosurgeon, uh, sort of like just starting his career. Like he'd finished his residency, he'd finished his fellowship, 
when he found out he had terminal cancer and like the really bad kind that like you die really quickly and really painfully yeah and he had just gotten married and so he talks about like the shift from becoming a doctor to a patient and he talks about really vulnerably like what it's like to die and what it's like to know you're dying and there's this quote that i love oh my god hold on let me see if i can find it um so him and his partner decided that they were going to uh have a child before he died Mm -hmm. um which was a really like obviously difficult decision yeah it's it's a controversial choice super controversial choice so this is a quote from his book his i think his wife was asking don't you think saying goodbye to your child will make your death more painful and he said wouldn't it be great if it did i said lucy and i both felt that life wasn't about avoiding suffering years ago it had occurred to me that darwin and nietzsche agreed on one thing the defining characteristic of the organism is striving. Describing life otherwise was like painting a tiger without stripes. After so many years of living with death, I'd come to understand that the easiest death wasn't necessarily the best. I think that's really profound. Like, I think leaning into death it has been my strategy lately because mm-hmm. it is an inescapable reality. It is. And I, it's not one that I can stop thinking about. Like, my my OCD, there's remnants of it still. And it's something that's very present in my life. And I found that leaning into death can actually be really healing. Like, in some ways, it's really scary. And at the beginning, like all your mind wants to do is be like, no, 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 stop thinking about it. Yeah. But one thing that death forces you to confront, I've found is the fact that like you can't take anything for granted and in that way life kind of intimates death right like everything around us is impermanent and changing and the relationships we have today are not going to be the same 10 years from now or even tomorrow and that is a little death like we experience we experience little deaths all the time and i think I don't know, I, I wonder if closing yourself off to that is also closing yourself off to life and love and, like, profound joy. Yeah. No, I think one method to avoid the the heartbreak that we're going to inflict on others when we die is to close yourself off from relationships and try yeah. to minimize your impact on the world. Um, which... I think would work in minimizing heartbreak for sure because you know who's gonna miss you if you just like never interact with the world at all like like say you have no family no friends but you know yeah your impact is gonna be minimal but life is just not worth it at that point I think yeah something that helps me a little bit and comforts me is as someone who likes to control things Mm -hmm. and I struggle with feeling like out of control because I really want to like fix people and I I feel this need to control the reactions of people after I die yeah so that after I die I can be like no don't be sad be happy um or like no don't you know have depression yeah (laughs) (laughs) don't be sad and be sexy (laughs) um And I think that one way to kind of exert 
control in a non-toxic, ghostly, afterlife yeah. manner is I like to think about a little bit like how I want death to be for me, mm-hmm. like what I want to happen to my body, what would be nice to think about my family doing with my body. Um, and I, I think that everything that kind of comes after death for like my body will really be up to my family because I think yeah the whole process of funerals and death rites are really for the living not really right for death. um so I don't like I don't have anything that I want to do with my body but I like to talk to my family about how I really want them to do what feels right for them you know like if they're if they're feeling extra catholic that day and they want to do like an open casket um everybody sees my dead body thing Mm -hmm. I think that's creepy but (laughs) some people find some real comfort in that no people do I my paternal grandfather died recently and we had an open casket funeral and I hated it Mm -hmm. I I thought it was so creepy but my family needed one last look at him and that's that's what mattered yeah yeah, I like to think about that. I think that as we get older, talking about what happens with our, you know, estate or will is really helpful. Um, my mom talks about what's going to happen when she dies all the time because she's just like, I don't know what it is about Catholics and death, but Catholics they are love so it. goth. They <laughs> love it. They love it. They're so emo. Um, and all the time she's like, oh, you know, when I die, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Um, and she's always like, I don't think I'm going to live for that much longer. She's being dramatic. She's a healthy 45 year old. I think it's comforting for her to talk about what's going to happen with me and my sister after she dies. I think that is a method of coping for her. And it's kind of depressing for me because I don't like to confront that. Right. Um, and I don't feel I have to confront that for some time, but of course you never know. And I think it is the fact that you never know. Yeah. Um, I I would recommend you read a book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. That's another really good book. And he talks about – the first part of the book is, is about, like, how we treat the elderly. And the second part is just, how, like, how do we treat mortality in general and, like, people who are dying. Mm-hmm. And his recommendation mm-hmm. is that we – have those conversations as often as and as vulnerable as possible even if they scare us because that is that is kind of a way to control your own reaction to death like if you've had 50 conversations with your mom about her death when it comes like it will be very routine for you like you'll know what to do yeah like you'll be grieving for sure but all of the extra shit that oftentimes just like pushes people over the edge when they're really trying to grieve and they also have to deal with wills and they also have to deal with like oh well what would this person have wanted or how would this person have wanted to die yeah like it it becomes less burdensome and in a way like you know like you're you're before even before you are grieving for that person you sort of let them know like hey I had this conversation with my mom, actually. We sat, and I, I asked her what she wanted to happen when she died. And at first, she didn't want to have the conversation. I was like, no, I read this book, and we're having it. <laughs> and it, no, but it was really, it was a really, like, beautiful and vulnerable moment where I, like, I cried, and I told her, I was like, I 
no, you're going to die one day. I know that if you have it your way, you're going to die before I do. Mm -hmm. And I just want you to know that, like, sure, it's going to be hard for me because I love you so much, but I will be okay. Yeah. Like, I will continue to live without you, and you'll always be a part of me. Like, you'll always be... I think this is where the Velman strategy can help us, actually, is thinking about, you know, where did my mother even go if she's just, like, a part of my existence in time? Mm-hmm. Like, if it, she if she's my knee, you know, to, to use the Bobby analogy. <laughs> like, where did she even go? She's just, she, it, it I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to think about the people we love dying. It's really hard, but I imagine it, it would have been really comforting for her to hear that you were going to be okay. I think that's it what was. I would want to hear. Yeah. And I, and I told her, I was like, look, if I die before you, this is what I want to happen to my body. Yeah. Um, which kind of comforted me because one thing that I find really comforting is the idea that like, when I die, all of my energy is just going to be dispersed into, like, the grand design of things. Like, like I will become the universe, and that's kind of a cool thing. Like, I'll just transform into all these different things, and I I don't want to be cremated for that reason. So, mm-hmm. and I want, like, a really natural burial, and so that, I, I don't think I, I, I know that my mom is not going to be okay if I die. And that really bothers me. Yeah. But I at least know that when I do die, if I do die before her, like my wishes will be fulfilled. And that is important. It, exer- it lets you have a little bit of control over a future where you will have no more control. Like, no will. Yeah. yeah. It, it gives you a little bit of will after a death. And that... I think humans find that really valuable. That's why we do death rituals. That's why we have yeah. for ages. Molly. Yes. I've so enjoyed this conversation. Me as well. I think one really cool thing about philosophy is that it is meant to be lived and tried out. And so I hope that you and the audience like does live and try out these strategies and find some consolation, if not comfort, then consolation. That maybe we can we can live while holding death. Yeah, I think what's been really nice about this conversation is I feel like philosophy is really abstract and unattainable. I just picture like these like old white men in their armchairs, in their armchairs, their yeah. armchairs and then talking about these like abstract problems that don't like I don't want to say they don't matter, but they don't matter, you know? Yeah. Like they do and they don't. It's it, they don't they matter in, in very different in less concrete ways. Yeah. And in less immediate ways. That and that's the goal of this podcast is to short, sort of show that like though we are faced with so much immediacy nowadays and though we are um though it can seem indulgent to engage in conversations like this. It's not it's, it can be really practical and just like there are problems that can't be solved without math or science or literature there are problems i would say most problems can't be solved without some critical philosophical thinking yeah. no it, it meets needs um and my needs are therapy so <laughs> I, <laughs> yes <my needs. laughs> yes i love you molly i love you <laughs> and i hope you don't die anytime soon thank you um thank you for being my first guest you're welcome 
Thank you all so much for resting your attention for a little while on our conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a like and a sweet comment on whatever podcasting platform you're using. Um, We also have a Patreon if you want to send us some green love. You can find us at patreon.com slash unsolicitedwisdom. And the song you're currently listening to is Dying is Fine by Rara Riot. Thanks, and I'll see y'all next week.